This week on the It's a Monkey podcast. The difference between disability and impairment, and I think it's an important distinction to make. An impairment is a condition you have. You know, I use a wheelchair or you're colorblind. A disability is something that's imposed on us in a non-accessible world. So when there's a flight of step, that's when I really have disability. When someone uses a financial graph using red and green colors, that's when you have a disability. But if we're working in an inclusive world, inclusive apps, suddenly our impairments are no longer disabilities. And I think that's probably a key to really open up our mindsets as designers, as developers to these concepts and realize we actually can make a significant difference in people's lives. Good morning, good evening, hello wherever you are in the world. My name is Kevin Garber. I am recording this interview podcast, sorry, I should just say this podcast, on Saturday the 9th of June 2018. We have uh, have lost a little bit of our weekly momentum, but we're trying to get back up there. Thanks so much for joining us if you're a regular listener to the podcast, and a special thank you if you're a first-time listener. Welcome. Please always feel free to email us at podcast.itsamonkey.com. And you can also tweet us at uh, Monkey Podcast and follow us on Facebook. As usual, I have my fantastic co-host with me, who uh, is Kate Frappel. She is the design lead at Managed Flutter, but she does a whole lot more. Kate, we were going to come up with a different title for you, weren't we? <laughs> yeah, like maybe 10 podcasts ago. <laughs> <laughs> How's that Still got there. Oh, I have It's on the low on my to-dos right now. Okay, well... Um, <laughs> Yeah, we should we should come up with. I, th- I think all of us, you know, at a small business, we less than fifteen people. We all do so much that our our titles become sometimes a little bit arbitrary. But anyway, we've uh, got Kate, who's who's from um, based in Whistler now, Whistler, Canada, and she's at the end of uh, my Skype line. Th- Kate, as always, thanks so much for joining us, and we have a fantastic show lined up in episode one twenty um, of the podcast. Uh, Later on in the show, we're going to play an interview that I did with Nick Steenhout, who's a web accessibility expert and disability rights activist. Quite a few podcasts ago, I interviewed Roy Benbenishi, who uh, worked for a company that developed some tools for disabled mobile users where they could uh, move the, the mobile cursor and navigate around the mobile screen using their head. And after watching some videos about how some people were assisted by that technology. Um, it really sort of you know, impacted me as how many people are losing out. You know, Just think about it. We sit with our mobile in our hands and walk with our mobile in our hands and, and basically stare at the screen 80% of the time we awake these days. And if you can't navigate and you can't use that, imagine how different your life would be. So it is an important issue. There are a lot of disabled people in the world and challenged in the world. So we had an interesting chat about all those Um, interesting themes. That's coming up later on in the show. But as usual, we have some news items that we sort of uh, kick off with to try and help you make sense of this fast-moving techno world that we live in. Mary Meeker's internet report came out last week. Now, if you haven't heard of Mary Meeker, she's a super interesting woman. She was an analyst at Morgan Stanley for many, many years, where she started putting out an annual internet report, which was absolutely fantastic and in-depth and, um, you know, well put together. And it became quite famous. And uh, Mary Mika then left to join a a very well-established venture capital company called uh, Kleiner Perkins Caulfield and Byers, and where she's been involved on the venture capital side of things. But she still puts out this internet report annually. And it's usually between 200 and 300 uh, slides and uh, a lot of information. But boy, is it filled with uh, great insights. Kate, have you ever, um, before I pointed it out to you, did you ever come across Mary Meeker's work? No, I hadn't actually. I did a bit of a Google today to see what she was all about. But yeah, it's super interesting. She's got, as you said, like 300 just about slides uh, that she releases each year just on statistics and patterns and predictions for tech and the internet, I guess. And she's, she, really, she really drills down into you know, a lot of the statistics. So it's not just uh, 
opinion and um, hypothesizing. She really pulls the latest trends. So it's super, super interesting. So she released her latest um, edition of the, of, of the Internet Report. Some highlights, Kate, from the Internet Report, quite interesting. Um, I mean, some of them, if you're in the industry, we live every day, but some of them are a lot of food for thought. And the, and the most important thing is she distills this into really a digestible form. So particularly if you're in a technical role in a non-technical business, this report's quite interesting to share with your executive team or your boss, etc., to just maybe justify some projects and, and, and really explain where um, everything is going. I mean, it's a huge report and we're not going to cover everything, but um, I, guess, I guess some of the, what I found some of the more interesting components of the, of the report is uh, she notes that we're living in the next major economic period. So um, Mary says, we're in the midst of the next major phase of evolutionary economic growth drivers. And uh, she says the 21st century, we're clearly in the period of compute power and human potential. So this coming together of this, uh, you know, massive computing power as well as our, our own potential. So you know, really being at the inflection point of the next phase of, uh, of substantial change. I mean, I, I'm always going around driving my friends mad, thinking like you're saying to them, if you think the last 20, 30 years were interesting, wait until the next 20 or 30 years. It's going to make <laughs> the last 20 look like nothing. Yeah. Definitely, you even mentioned, you know, the digital age and how we're like sort of in like a, you know, overdrive of this digital age at the moment because – when you think back on previous years, like it took 80 years to adopt the dishwasher, but consumer internet's only taken about 10. Uh, and you think of like things like the iPhone and cloud storage, um, cloud software, they're, they're not even teenagers in human years yet. Like they're only sort of originated in uh, 06, 07. Absolutely. So it's, I mean, the, the, the cycles have tightened and become so, so, so fast. Um, and I think the, the people growing up, in, you know, the young people growing up in today's time periods are going to get used to that. I don't know what that's going to do to the mental health, to be honest. I, I, I think, as I mentioned before, I go to a lot of conferences and festivals and I meet people of all sorts of ages and backgrounds. And, and this is purely anecdotal, but, but some young people seem to, to be struggling with all the change and uncertainty and, and, and everything that's going on, you know, and it, 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 I, it sort of makes sense in a world where that everything's constantly changing. It's, it's not the easiest to, to digest and, and to stay grounded yourself, particularly if you, you haven't had the best, uh, um, you know, advantage of parenting and stable environment, et cetera. Yeah, and things are just changing so quickly, it's hard to keep up. She actually makes her point in the in the report about being lifelong learners is like key to success because you can't, you know, like the old days of specializing in one thing and then making that your your money and your growth and your career for the rest of your life are gone. Like you've got to keep learning, keep updating your knowledge just because the pace is so, so fast. It's, um, I was recently on a bit of a, a work trip in a couple of different countries, including Israel, and I visited a, a family member in Tel Aviv that has been working for LL, which is the, the national airline there. Kate, I think he's been working there for over 30 years. Wow. Uh, yeah. You know, as That's uh, a big chunk. One, one of the lead sort of head engineers. And granted, he's, he's evolved and he's, he is learning there within that role and within that company. But wow, you just, it's, it's just absolutely unheard of these days. I mean, it's almost frowned upon, you know, to, to stay at a company, I don't know, even for five years, let alone for over 30 years. I mean, it does happen a bit at Google and Facebook that people have been there for, for quite a while, but, but the landscape certainly has significantly changed and where people feel that a lot of the time they do have to move on to continue learning and push themselves forward. Yeah, definitely. I'll point out one other thing that I quite liked from the report was so consumer experiences are driving enterprise software. So you've got things like Slack, which have a very like consumer feel. You know, they feel like a messaging platform. They feel like Facebook Messenger, for example. But they're like making a big comeback in the enterprise space. It's just quite interesting, you know, like they're growing in importance and, and 
they're sort of gone past just being messages and now they're sort of like a a directory almost and they've got all the history and the structure of a company in there and so their value just increases over time yeah and i think you know people people go home and they use these great consumer apps that are incredibly well designed they're incredibly slick they're well thought out they got a great look and feel they don't want to go to their job the next day and be stuck with these ugly clunky apps that aren't easy to use um, are really painful and and they they think well you know this is and, and traditionally enterprise apps are pretty much like that you know ui is not a thing and and workflow and and having it seamless and integrated is not a thing and i think i think so yes the consumerization of of the enterprise is very much driven by all these fantastic consumer apps like uber which is so well designed and such a great app r- right through to the facebooks and and the googles etc so i think that has been a a very very big impact and if you're creating an enterprise app these days the bar is incredibly high in the old days uh, enterprise apps were were incredibly clunky and ugly i even think there's still some enterprise apps like like salesforce you know when i looked at salesforce it's not it doesn't definitely doesn't excite you in the same way that um, some consumer type apps are just so beautiful to use. Yeah, definitely. I know even when I think back when we were using Yammer, like the difference between Slack and Yammer is enormous. Yeah, yeah. No, Slack is is definitely probably a a, a great poster child of the consumerization of the the enterprise, where it's a, an incredibly beautiful, well thought out. And um, app that's got a little bit of personality as well, which um, is quite quite difficult to do and quite rare in the in the enterprise space. Even Jira, I mean Jira, Jira's still got a very much an enterprise feel to it. I'm not a, I don't use it that much because I find it just just way just too convoluted. I know the team uses it a lot and likes it a lot, but that's still a little bit of the old flavor, right? It is. I mean, they did recently do a redesign, but you know, I wouldn't say that it's changed massively. Like, I don't think I would recommend that yourself go in there and you're going to see a massive transformation. No, they just changed a lot of the logos, some of the fonts and stuff, but the actual workflow is quite similar. So, if you haven't looked at Mary Meeker's Internet Report before, go and have a look. It's all online. It's, it's a fantastic report to look at every year, and particularly if you're in a job where you need to justify projects to someone, or um, you, you need a non-technical leadership team to understand what's going on in the industry. She does all the hard work for you. Um, there's a lot in there. We only just touched on one or two points, but uh, it could be a, a show unto itself. I'd love to get her on the podcast. She's Kate. She's actually worked watching her presentations i don't know if you've actually watched her presentation she's watching her own did you say no no, sorry it's worth it's worth it if you watch your her it's worth it if you watch her presentation right yeah no i i flicked through some of the slides i didn't actually see her presenter though it's actually worth watching her present because she is so smart and she pulls it together in such a a brilliant way incredibly incredibly smart woman so watch out for her presentation um, it adds a whole nother layer just to the, the slides there. Second item, news item for today, Apple announces iOS 12. Tell us about uh, what Apple are bringing to the, the iOS uh, ecosystem. Yeah, so not, not humongous changes. They're actually just focusing on stability and performance at this stage. So it'll be available for iPhone 5S forward. And it's in like a developer preview at the moment, but as of September, they're predicting it'll be available to everyone. Basically, like they're going to improve some of the apps, like the launch speed should be two times faster. And most interestingly would be the way they're handling notifications, but also usage. So notifications currently come up singularly. So for example, like I've got the Slack app every time I get a new message, I get a new notification. So sometimes when I wake up, I could be scrolling forever and I've got all these Slack notifications. But with this update, they're actually going to group them by app or event. So I might wake up and it'll say, you have 12 Slack notifications rather than listing all 12 of them. Uh, So this is something like people have been wanting for a really long time. 
And you can also manage those notifications from the lock screen. So at the moment, you have to go into your settings, into the individual app, and then define what your notifications were, whether you just wanted banners or sounds, et cetera. But now you can actually do that straight on the lock screen. So you say, I don't want to see any more of these, get rid of them, which is cool. But also they're doing like these activity reports. So you can actually set limits on how long you want to use a particular app. Mm -hmm. So for example, I don't want to spend more than an hour, let's say on Instagram each day. I can set that up in my iPhone. Yeah. And it will, um, when I'm coming to my, when I'm coming to the hour mark, I'll get notifications to say, "Look, you, you don't want to be on Instagram any longer than this today." That's cool. Um, it would be cool if you give parental controls over that, and the parents can set the policy, right? And the phone just. Oh, I feel like that would be a disaster waiting to happen. Just kills. That. <laughs> but that that is a good idea, and it's uh, very mature of them to to put a feature like that in. Yeah, so I thought I thought it's quite interesting that they're implementing that. But they're also putting a report um, so you can see in like a graph format how frequently you're using your phone and what you're using it for. So it categorizes them into social media and entertainment, for example. And so your screen time, the app limits, and also like the do not disturb mode, which I find quite good. So after a certain time, it actually um, dulls the brightness of your screen and notifications still come through but they're silent Mm -hmm. um so between certain hours you don't get woken up but so it's getting a bit of a revamp for ios 12 the notifications on the lock screen will actually be hidden until the morning so even if you woke up and looked at it it would look like you didn't have anything yeah i've got a i got a do not disturb mode on my phone on my google pixel too so do you still get notifications though pretty sure silently Pretty sure not. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, like I definitely don't hear them at the moment. Like they, they just come through really silently. But in the morning, they're all there. Right. Uh, but the new one, they're just going to be hidden until a certain time that you tell them to appear. I have to say the Google Pixel 2, which I've had for quite a while, is definitely the best phone I've ever had. It's, it integrates obviously so well with all the Google apps. Um, the camera is incredible the battery life is incredible there's only one thing i don't like about it and that's they don't have a headphone jack and that just drives me bonkers so you either need to use bluetooth headphones or you need to use the adapter and i use a headphone so much that the adapter sort of goes wonky every few months i have to get a new adapter which is not the end of the world but that's a pain there's also i sent you a note there's also the Google's got a fantastic feature inside. The Google phone's got an, a, a fantastic feature inside. The eSIM, which is an actual SIM that um, you can piggyback off Google's project uh, fee or FI, I think it's called. Yeah, I did see that. So you can actually travel. But you can travel without getting new SIMs, which is amazing. I won't get into all of that, but um, you, can, you can. Essentially, it's a network of networks that they've that Google have negotiated so uh, you can access mobile networks without a SIM, which I think is such a smart idea and um, mm. makes for fr- a frequent traveler like me, it's just, it'd be absolutely amazing that. And you can still have your original SIM, but like when I go to the States now, I can just plug into Google's, you know, eSIM. So yeah, if you're, mm. if you're looking for an alternative to the iOS and iPhone side of things the google pixel is really really a fantastic phone and i think they're going to be pushing it quite hard it's an expensive phone although i have seen in australia they've just dropped the price at jb hi-fi from 1400 to about a thousand so they've dropped it by 400 dollars, which is quite a lot which i'm a bit bummed about because i i paid the original <laughs> price so <laughs> thanks a lot guys but um i don't know if that means they're selling well or they they're not selling um, as well, but um, obviously Apple still has a big chunk of not even so much the numbers, but an important part of the market, like in Silicon Valley and San Francisco, everyone seems to be on Apple. Yeah, yeah. As part of an ecosystem too, you know, like I probably would be open to trying these, you know, other phones, Google Pixel and stuff. Except that I know that they're not going to talk with my MacBook and other devices as well as an iPhone would. 
yeah, I mean, the idea is, and that's what Google's trying to create with their ecosystem. And they're yeah. trying to, and they're trying to, um, you know, get get that going. But yeah, look, I, I I don't know. There's I don't ever miss it not talking, but I've never been into the, the Apple. I use a Mac, but I'm I've never been into the the, the entire ecosystem um, on that side of things. So yeah, so Apple iOS new version coming out September. Yes, yes, they got a few other bits and pieces and they're probably not as noteworthy as the notifications and the uh, app limits that I mentioned, but um, they're bringing third-party navigation apps to CarPlay. So when you use your iPhone in your car via Bluetooth, you can actually use Google Maps and Waze now, which you couldn't do before. They're adding voice memos to the iPad and some shortcuts to Siri so you can create custom commands and tell Siri to look within certain apps. So it's not just a blanket search. It's actually quite a specific search with a command. Um, every time yeah. every time I go on and on to my sister about how AI is going to revolutionize the world, she says to me, look, Siri still can't really help me properly every time. So until the day that Siri actually manages to be genuinely useful, I'm not going to believe you. Interestingly, though, Siri is actually a little bit behind now. Uh-huh. Google and Alexa are actually leading the way. Siri is quite far behind. Right. Um, so it'd be interesting. Like They're obviously giving it a little bit of a beef up, but I feel like maybe in the next year or with another big announcement, they're going to really go hard out on the Siri thing. There was actually an Amazon exec, Kate, that came out, I think, last week or the week before that's basically said web browsing is going to be dead in a few years. He said it's going to be all voice interface. Now, it's crazy. Yeah, I, I personally don't agree with him because I actually think, you know, it's faster to do things without voice generally. So I, I don't think it's, it's going to be as dramatic a shift. I think voice will become more frequently used, but I definitely don't think text, um, text input and a text interface is going to disappear. And that's my opinion. Yeah, I can't see it particularly. Because text, like, can you imagine everybody walking around the streets talking to themselves? And it would just be a little bit weird, you know, well, and very loud. It happens with the Bluetooth headsets, right? Particularly in the US, not so much in Australia, but in the US they tend to like the Bluetooth headsets a lot more and you see people, even those old style Bluetooth headsets, you know, that the yeah, couriers all true. use. Still not, it's not the same though, like because they're, they're talking to someone. Yeah. Whereas like if you're just walking around... If you if you set up these commands, for example, you could just say like "cup of coffee," yeah, you know, and it would mean "open my music folder." Like it doesn't have to be relevant, and people would just be shouting out random things all day to themselves <laughs> and getting annoyed with the machines. I was having I was having a chat last night with someone I can't remember. You know, oh yeah, with some of the team we were chatting with. You know about how. Uh, we were talking about, I was telling them about how I was a radio producer in the era before, you know, Google and how, how did we manage to pull it off? And we'll be saying in 20 years, we'll be saying, how did we manage to live without our personal robot that does all our cleaning and does all our cooking? And uh, it gives us a massage when we come home. How did we ever live without one of these things? You know, it's true. It's true. I can see it now. Like it's the same with the phone. Like when you're traveling, you rely on it so much for maps and for information and what to do, where to go, who you're meeting at what time. And you think like, how on earth did anyone survive before phones? Yeah. So like it would be the same concept like down the track. It'll just be mind-blowing. A few days ago, I saw some people. I, I like seeing, you know, it's one of the fantastic things about being downtown Sydney is that there's a lot of tourists and you feel, I always think, wow, it's so fantastic to live in a city where people come from you know, halfway around the world to have a look at. And, and I always keep an eye out for tourists struggling a bit. And I actually saw these two tourists looking at a map, old school style, turning the map around, trying to work out which way, <laughs> which way it went. And it was nostalgic. It was actually nostalgic because you don't see that much. And it reminded me, you know, of my travel days after uni. And, and I went up to them and I, and I said, oh, hi, guys, can I, you know, can I help you get somewhere? And they said, oh, we're trying to get to King's Cross. And I pointed them to the station. And, you know, one of the things with the new technologies, you don't get lost anymore, right? 
in the old days you would get lost, which sometimes was a good thing. And you would meet people and you would communicate and you'd ask for directions. And now it's efficient. You know, in my, in my recent travels, boy, is it so efficient. These apps just allow you to, I got my little healthy food cafe app and I identify the healthy food cafe close to me. And then I use Google Maps to get there. And it's just, it's, it's lovely and efficient. It's a, it is a total different world without it. So we, we would be totally de-skilled and wouldn't know where to start. Exactly. I would just be, I, would be, I like having a break from technology, but I think more than a day without some of the essentials is actually a struggle, especially if you were traveling. I mean, if you were doing like things that you did every day and you were very familiar with them, you wouldn't really have a problem. But if you're in a new place, new people, like you kind of rely on those tools now. Yeah. It's very, for travel and particularly travel, you know, I was traveling in non-English speaking countries. I was, I was in France and uh, Israel and uh, there it becomes even more important because, uh, you know, you can't speak the language and, it's, and it totally makes it a very workable experience. So it's great we got these tools, but it definitely de-skills us and uh, makes us very dependent. But uh, it's only going to get worse. So we'll have our companion robots in a few years. You heard it here first, right? <laughs> <laughs> but it can be so much more efficient though. I suppose that's what these robots and stuff will do as well. But like if you think you, you didn't have a phone, you'd have to read a map, you have to go and get the map and you wouldn't be able to meet and get as much done because you'd be meeting so-and-so at a certain time at this place and you'd just be relying on your watch and you wouldn't really know when the next bus was coming. Like it would just be a very slow pace compared to now but that's how it was i traveled in those days right that's how it was it was slower you would make more errors you'd get very lost you'd land up wasting half the day sometimes you would meet people along the way and make new friends and that part you miss out on these days right and or you'd form friendships because you'd be like hey we'll work this out together do you speak english i speak english too okay great Let's work out and, and find out how to take the train out of here, you know. So, you know, I read an interesting article about uh, community. I'm very interested in the power of community and an article about how um, community breaks down as, as societies get wealthier because instead of using each other to solve problems as a society becomes wealthier, you use money to solve problems, right? So just trivial examples. You arrive back at the airport You've got money for a cab. You hop in the cab and you hop on home, right? If you don't have money, what do you do? You phone your friends. You try plan a lift from a friend or an acquaintance. And in that time, driving home, you spend time talking with them and building a bond and connecting. And so it goes, you know, that um, and, and one of the theories was that society becomes wealthier. Our community is, is breaking down because you're not forced to, to form bonds. And if you've ever gone to... Um, you know, communities in, in less developed countries, you see how much they work with each other to optimize and pool resources and live together. And, and the communal bonds um, actually look a lot stronger, which can actually be quite better. So this technology absolutely is amazing, but I think we do have to maintain awareness and try to counterbalance some of the, the holes that it creates. But um, we're not going backwards from it. So there's, uh, yeah, that backwards and putting us into reverse gear is not an option. No, definitely not. Anyway, you've been listening to Philosophy by Kate and Kev. <laughs> <laughs> do, you know, do you know, Kate, that France is one of the only countries that I'm aware of that in high school they study very, very heavy philosophy, you know, even like um, guys like Foucault and Descartes and... Uh, interesting i don't think i'm not aware of any other country where they uh, study such heavy philosophy i became aware of it on my recent trips so um, it's one wow. of the reasons why i guess they are very artistic and cultural society taught to think about things differently absolutely from a young age right from a young age yeah everyone's aware of the philosophers and the philosophical approach to thinking so Anyway, you're listening to the It's a Monkey podcast, episode number 120. My name is Kevin Garber. You can follow me on Twitter and Instagram and Kate Rappel. You can follow Kate on Twitter and Instagram. You can email us at podcast and If you want someone, if you think someone would be interesting to be interviewed on the show, we like to interview entrepreneurs, thought leaders, educators, 
we have a very wide berth, which, uh, you know, very wide brief, which we can interview people. So feel free to drop us a line. We're going to take a short break. And after the break, I'm going to play an interview that I did a little while back with uh, Nick Steenhout, who's a web accessibility expert and disability rights activist. Uh, and we had an interesting chat about, um, uh, about all topics related to that theme and technology, etc. So stick with us and we'll be back shortly. Hi, my name is Joe Pinto. I'm the Business Operations Manager here at Manage Flitter. Did you know that Twitter can be a powerful social selling platform? But the first step to effective social selling on Twitter is to grow your Twitter account with high quality niche followers. For example, let's say you are an online bicycle retailer. Manage Flitter could help you grow your Twitter account by helping you find and follow people who have the word cyclist in their bio. The more targeted your search is, the higher likelihood these Twitter accounts will follow you back. We have millions of users, literally, that have used Manage Flitter's search, sort and filtering tools to grow their account with the right followers. This has provided them with a solid base to kickstart their social selling. Feel free to drop by manageflitter.com to trial our product or email us at contact at manageflitter.com to schedule an obligation-free walkthrough. You're back with It's a Monkey podcast. Now we cover everything related to technology, startups, entrepreneurship. And you might have remembered, um, might be a couple years ago now, but I had um, someone on the podcast, Roy Benbenishi, who is from a company called Sesame Enable. And um, I dragged Roy on after I was a at a tech event where there were some companies from all over the world showcasing their technologies. And Roy represented a company called Sesame Enable, which I thought was fantastic. Now, what Sesame Enable had created, they had created some software and some technology that allowed people to navigate the mobile phone with their head, not their finger. And why this was significant was it allowed all the people uh, with injuries that couldn't use their hands to navigate a mobile phone. Now, if you think how many times an hour that you use your mobile phone and not being able to do that, how your life would be different if you wouldn't be able to navigate your phone. And Sesame Enable brought that all to, to a whole sort of um, you know, group of people that are not able to, to use their phone. So it's something that a lot of us able-bodied pers- people don't think about a lot. I know I actually don't think about it a lot unless, until I see someone who's, who has a disability. So I'm happy to say at the end of my Skype line, uh, I have uh, Nick Steenhout, who's a disability rights activist and also an accessibility expert. And we're going to talk about uh, technology and ex- accessibility and all those um, important issues. Nick, thanks so much for joining us on the podcast from, I believe, somewhere in Canada, right? Yes. Hi, Gary. I'm currently in uh, Montreal, Quebec, Canada. Yeah. Montre- Montreal is definitely on my top part of Canada, sort of my top to-do list of Canada. I've never been to Canada, but Montreal is my number one. Well, you should definitely come and visit. And if you really want a good shock to your system, come in January or February <laughs> when we're that. getting minus 40 temperatures with a meter of snow on the ground. Look, Nick, I live in Sydney. When Sydney drops to 15 degrees Celsius, people start wondering, uh, walking around and saying, oh, it's gone cold, hasn't it? Oh, it's gone cold, hasn't it? 12 degrees, the gloves and the beanies start coming out. Less than 10, yeah, I don't know. We just struggle to cope. So, uh yeah, I think I'll rather come in June, July, August. Yeah. I was actually in uh, Sydney last January for uh, talking at uh, LinuxConf. So it was a nice break for us to uh, to actually be in summer uh, while the family was in winter here. Yeah, we definitely, uh, that's the advantage of being on opposite ends of the world and, and doing some traveling. Nick, um, tell, us, tell us about your journey and, and tell us a little bit more about this, uh, what you're involved with. So I, um, I'm a person with disability. I use a wheelchair and I started using wheelchair a long time ago. And so from that perspective, I've always been interested in building accessibility and the, the built environment accessibility. And then back in 93, 94, I was playing with HTML and, you know, playing with websites and being really excited about all these new technologies that were coming on. And a friend and colleague of mine who was blind, uh, relying on screen reader application to be able to interact with his computer, 
came up to me and he says, Nick, what's this happening? My my screen reader keeps saying image, 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 image. Uh, and the only thing I get out of the website is image. Mm-hmm. And I looked at the site and, well, at the time we didn't have access to CSS and this designer wanted to use really good looking font. So they went and created a whole bunch of images of text in Photoshop. And the entire menu was images of text and there was no alternate uh, text. So my friend could not actually interact at all with the, the menu or the, the site. So combining my my interest with HTML and my understanding of the built environment accessibility, I kind of started being interested in web accessibility. And, and that was over 20 years ago. So I haven't looked back since. Fantastic. And um, I mean, I guess it's become in many ways more of a complex issue, but more of a, uh, I mean, the fact that you know, we're not just stuck with web pages on a computer. We have audio, we have video, we have Bluetooth, we have... So in many ways, there's also a lot of opportunities to enhance access- accessibility as well, right? There is a whole world out there of technologies that would allow us to make everything we build fully accessible. It's just a question of first being aware of it, and then once we're aware of it, making sure we implement the, the, the different requirements to, to make sure it works with assistive technologies. Now, it's, it's, you know, I remember the days, that's when I got in, started the web in the, the mid-late 90s, and I remember some discussions popping up every now and then about accessibility and putting alternative text on images so that, um, you know, uh, readers for blind people, etc. Is that something that web developers still need to be aware of? Is that I mean, accessibility at that level? Is that still relevant in the same way? I haven't directly been building websites for a long time, so I'm actually quite out of touch with the best practices are for web accessibility when building websites and um, phone apps as well. Yes, absolutely. The uh, alt text for images is definitely something that's important, but it, it's not necessarily a straightforward question, alt text, because you have to ask yourself, is it an informative image or is it a decorative image? And if it's decorative, then you want to use a a null alt text because then it permits the assistive technology to actually ignore the image. But it's it's beyond just alt text. It's a whole range of, of issues. So we have people that have no vision using screen readers. We have people that have low vision that either need larger font size or they need high contrast. We have people with hearing impairments that obviously can't access audio. We have people with cognitive disabilities that may have difficulty processing the written word. So we want to write the the text in a way that's more towards plain English rather than, than something convoluted. We have people that are unable to use a mouse. So we want to make sure that we can navigate the site using just a keyboard uh, and here's a challenge for you guys out there. Spend a day or, or even just an hour going through all your favorite websites using just a tab key and the shift tab to go forwards and backwards between the, the active elements and see how friendly your site is for, for keyboard-only users. And, and chances are you're going to find that there's some uh, frustration there. You know, Nick, even and, – and this is obviously – compared to the significance of uh, the disabilities we're talking about, incredibly low on the spectrum, but I'm quite colorblind. And, mm. um, you know, I find, I find graphs or, or representations or infographics where I struggle to read them. I actually have noticed that I don't even make an effort to try work out what they're saying. I just pass them over. They're too hard for me, you know. And um, I mentioned a couple of times before on this podcast where I, our CFO, when he's preparing financial graphs for me from the very early days, um, I needed to get him on the Excel graphs to put symbols on the lines because I would just get, if it was red and green, and he would say, oh, just, you know, they separated by color. It was, it, it was just too difficult for me to distinguish. So even a small factor like that can really, if that impacts me day to day, I mean, yeah, absolutely. Not being able to navigate technology as it was designed i mean even or even something as simple as left-handers in the right-handed world so mm. so if, if you if you have uh, significant disabilities wow it must it must be incredibly frustrating sometimes when you feel like um, you're not even an afterthought you're not even a thought when these technologies are developed right yeah i i think the uh, question of color blindness is important because there's about eight percent of men throughout the western world that have color blindness and if we think about 
all the toggles and apps, all the graphs, as you say, you know, it's it's green, you got it gone, it's red, you haven't, but you can't tell that. Um, and that leads me to to present an idea here, the difference between disability and impairment. And I think it's an important distinction to make. An impairment is a condition you have. You know, I use a wheelchair or you're colorblind. A disability is something that's imposed on us in a non-accessible world. So when there's a flight of step, that's when I really have disability. When someone uses a financial graph using red and green colors, that's when you have a disability. But if we're working in an inclusive world, inclusive apps, suddenly our impairments are no longer disabilities. And I think that's probably a key to really open up our mindsets as designers, as developers to these concepts and realize we actually can make a significant difference in people's lives. Have you, are you familiar with the Sesame Enable technology? I've heard of it, but I have not dug into it, so I really couldn't speak about it uh, knowledgeably anyway. I mean, what you said there is, you know, that we can make a difference is, is really, that's the feeling I had when I saw the Sesame Enable technology. And then in many ways, that is the spirit of technology is to impact our lives positively mm. in, in so many ways. So, you know, we can, as people involved in the technology industry, we can certainly be part of the solution and, and, uh, and you, you're probably more up to speed with some of the technologies where you can, move, you, you can, train, um, you can train some of these brain interfaces as well. Yep. So, um, I, I would yep. assume there's, maybe coming quite advanced. There's, there's uh, quite a bit of, of work being done towards brainwave interaction. There's, there's a headset that sells for something like 300 US dollars called the uh, Epoch. And uh, from that, uh, they've stopped development really for for JoQ Public, but they're they're using it more towards the medical world. But you still can buy the headset and a, a developer kit, and suddenly you can actually uh, program your keynote presentations to be able to be directed just thinking about it next slide and it goes so you can direct a power wheelchair just with thoughts you can do these kind of things maybe it's not ready for prime time maybe it's not a technology that's accessible in terms of financial advantages for a majority of people but it's good to have these movement there because yeah technology can make a big difference in people's lives nick tell us a little bit about the human aspect i mean as able-bodied people I mean, I know when, when I come across someone who's, who's perhaps in a wheelchair or has some disability, I, I, I become a bit self-conscious of whether I should make an effort to ignore the fact that, um, you know, they're in a wheelchair or to um, acknowledge it and try to assist them. I'm, I have to be honest, I get, I, I, I get a little bit, um, I'd like to do the right thing and I'd like to not... Um, you know, be cliched or patronizing, but I'm not always sure what the, the, the correct approach is. The first thing to remember is that people with disabilities are people, mm -hmm. first and foremost. So basically, treat people with disabilities like you would treat or want be wanted to be treated yourself. Second part is to remember that it's okay to ask, you know, if you see me, can I help you? Can I open the door for you? Uh, do you want to push up that hill? That's okay to ask. And chances are, I'm going to say, no, I don't need help. Thank you. And then it's your job to respect that answer. Because right. so many times people ask, can I help? And you say no. And then they decide that, oh, well, surely he didn't mean it. And I'm going to help anyway. Right. Um, so it, keep that in mind, you know. Uh, people are people are people. And it's always all right to ask. And then respect the answer. I, I saw someone uh, in Martin Place in Sydney, if you remember Martin Place in Sydney, sort of right in the downtown CBD area. Um, mm. It's got a bit of a hill. And I remember a few months ago seeing someone in a wheelchair sort of really struggling to get themselves up the hill. And I, and I have to be honest, I wasn't, I wasn't sure what to do. And I didn't offer to help. I wanted to offer to help. So, yeah, it, it's good to be reminded and, and uh, of, of uh, you know, and, and on a reductionist level, as you say, just realizing they're people and, and respecting and respecting on face value what they say, I think is, mm. is important. We actually had a, a, a successful patent or intellectual property attorney 
on our podcast from the US um, a few episodes ago that um, actually lost his arm when he was quite young and has made a very successful career out of intellectual property. And it's fantastic we live in a world that's, that's based a lot on our uh, intellect, not just our, our physical ability, that um, it's, it's people can build terrific careers. There's a very well-known, also an intellectual property lawyer in Sydney, and that's in a very, he's actually a medical doctor and a lawyer, and, and he's in a wheelchair as well. So it's great that there's, there, in many ways, there's no boundaries, but it seems like there's still technological bottlenecks that as technologists, we can be part of the solution to, to unblock and mm. make it even easier. I would venture to say that the biggest barriers are the attitudes up there. Mm, interesting. And the lack of awareness. These, these two are probably the two biggest barriers to overcome. Once we overcome that, the, the fact that we understand that we can all be part of the solution in terms of accessibility, when we realize that accessibility is good for everyone, you know, I, I say that, but it's true. If, if we're looking at someone who has low vision that relies on having good color contrast on a website to be able to use it, so great text on a great background doesn't work for them. And then I tell you, hey, Gary, can you look at that site on your mobile phone outside in full sun? Chances are you're not going to be able to really understand what's going on because the contrast is not good enough. So when we think about contrast for someone with disabilities, suddenly it becomes helpful for other people. When we think about writing in plain English, it's good for non-native English speaker. It's good for Google Translate. It's also good for, say, a young mother that has a struggling infant in one arm and is trying to read information about how to, I don't know, bottle feed the baby or whatnot on a site. So her, she doesn't have an impairment, but she has a functional limitation in terms of being able to focus on what's going on. So suddenly, changes we make to improve accessibility for people with disabilities have a massive impact on the usability for, for everybody out there. Nick, I grew up in South Africa in the 70s and 80s where I think um, disability rights really wasn't a thing and wasn't uh, handled very well. And when I remember I started traveling to the US and to Australia, and I would see how a bus would stop or a train would stop to just make sure that a disabled person can come on in their wheelchair. I remember that vividly and I remember thinking how fantastic that was that we had reached a point in society where we all acknowledged that delaying the bus for a few minutes was worth it so that someone with a disability can live a life that's pretty normal. And I remember I had never seen that in South Africa. Of course, we never at the time had much public transport, so, uh, but, uh, <laughs> so there were other issues. But I remember thinking, what a fantastic thing it is. And still on the trains in Sydney, um, they'll assist people with, uh, in wheelchairs. So it's, I would imagine some progress has been made, but, but certainly I, I would imagine it's a constant uh, work in progress, I suppose, for, for all sorts of minority groups, including um, disabled. Mm. It, it is a work in progress. And, and uh, when I look back 20 years, there's, there's things that have changed tremendously. And there's things that aren't moving either. It, it's, it, I think it depends a lot on context. Uh, it seems that people that have had contact with people with disabilities are have a bigger awareness, greater awareness, and, and that makes a difference. And I think the more people with disabilities are out there and, and voicing the need out there for accessibility, the more we're going to build this awareness and start doing things um, I hesitate to say the right way because it might sound a bit grandiose, but you know, make things in an inclusive way. You know, Nick, I had I had a friend who was born with a congenital some congenital conditions and and would work, walk um, with with a heavy gait and and be a lot shorter than the average height. And her biggest challenge was drunk young men. Right? She'd be at a party, and guys would start getting drunk, and they would start. Um, you know, commenting very loudly to each other or even just laughing. And it would always upset her and she would leave the party and sometimes she would call me and it was just, just such a terrible thing, just a, such a terrible side of humanity that, you know, these chaps had no idea of what she had been through and the struggles she had overcome and even on a day-to-day -day basis. I mean, and I, and I, I mean, even if I was there, I'm not even sure how, I mean, how do you deal with, with 
drunk, young, offensive man. I, you know, it was really quite terrible, and she would just be so upset. It was quite, quite horrible to see. Fact is, you know, assholes are assholes are assholes anywhere, and and you deal with it the best you can. You you grow a thick skin, and you just deal with it. And every once in a while, you get overwhelmed, but uh, you move on because it's it is what it is. Yeah, and you hope one day uh, life life teaches them the right way eventually. Nick, mm. Nick um, how do people people stay in touch with you if they're interested in uh, finding out more about um, you know the issues you talk about about um, accessibility and technology? You're on Twitter, LinkedIn. What's the best way to get uh, stay in touch? Um, I am on Twitter uh, uh, at Vavroom, V A V R O O M. I have a blog, uh, which is at incl.ca, and I have a weekly podcast where I talk about web accessibility at a11yrules.com, accessibilityrules.com. And we'll put this all up on the show notes of itsamonkey.com as usual. And I can tell you've got Great. a podcast because I can see your mic set up. <laughs> you've even got the fancy audio filter there. And your your video position with your mic is uh, absolutely perfect. And as opposed to me, I'm doing it from my home this morning, so I've got my my, my traveling setup happening, and I'm a little bit um, rock and roll. So I can tell you've got your own podcast. How long have you been doing your podcast for? Um, since uh, July last year, I okay, um, started it a bit on a on a whim. I thought there's a whole bunch of people working in accessibility that I know, but I didn't know really well. So I thought. I'd like to get to know these people better. And um, I interview people and we, we talk about their background and their thoughts about accessibility. So it's not a really technical show. It's it's more in terms of thinking about accessibility and, and where we're going, where we've been. I also have a, an offshoot where I speak with people with disabilities. So fairly short segments, five to 10 minutes. And I ask them about their impairment, uh, what barriers they encounter on the web, and also what they hope designers and developers know about. So these are pretty good and snappy sh- short shows. I'm going to um, I'm going to subscribe. My podcast list is crazy. I love my two favorite things to do are to listen to my podcasts and some of the YouTube talks. And I, I spend ages walking around Sydney just listening to podcasts and watching the YouTube talks. I would like to introduce you to Roy Benvenici and Sesame Enable. I think you'd enjoy talking to them on your show. Yeah, I'd like that. A, a, amazing group of people, and they've, they're quite advanced with the technology, and it's just it's such fantastic technology. So, yeah, I'll, I'll link you offline with that, but I'll definitely um, um, connect with your podcast. I think it's something important. You know, it's, it's important always for us to just get out of our own bubble in our head and just uh, create empathy. I think that's where VR will be also really good in, in helping to create experiences you know, that are not our own in a very, and, and get us to experience them quite deeply. I'm hoping mm. that will help create that empathy that is that humans are not, not always, the average human's not always that good um, at feeling deep empathy. There's the odd amazing individuals, but we, we generally, I guess, so challenged by just making it through our own day that uh, we struggle a little bit to see the world through other people's eyes. So maybe VR can be also part of the solution. Yeah, I I definitely think VR and artificial intelligence are going to become a, a great parts of the solution long term. Uh, it may not be ready for prime time right now, but as it goes, we're we're getting to a point where it's going to make a difference. You don't think we're going to be like Elon Musk said? We're going to be like the cats to to robots and artificial lives, and they're going to feed us and pat us, and we're going to be second-class, third-class citizens. You don't think that dystopian vision is going to happen? I try to be an optimist, (laughs) and I choose to avoid thinking about dystopian future. It really comes down to how aware we are of the impact of technology can have on people's lives, and if we build that awareness, we're not going to go down that path. Hey, maybe when the American government sort of has finished discussing privacy settings on Facebook with Mark Zuckerberg and they can maybe start looking at, at policy and issues relating to artificial intelligence. But yes, there's a Kevin Kelly who's a great writer and, and I was lucky enough to interview him on our show. And he's a much, got a, an incredibly optimistic view 
of all these technologies in the world is going to create. And then you've got the Elon Musk school of thoughts. Maybe it's just South African in us. I don't know. <laughs> we're, it's, it's, you know we, we're a little bit more pragmatic and we grew up in a bit more of a chaotic environment where we think we're just going to be the third class citizens and be getting fed and they're going to be, you know, five times. You, you know, I think it was um, Kevin Rose on his podcast, uh, XDig, he does a podcast and he was chatting to some super smart guy. And this guy made an incredibly interesting point about artificial intelligence. He said, if you look at the monkeys and gorillas and baboons, they're, you know, we whatever, 98% or 99% similar DNA and their intelligence is only a few percent less than ours. And yet, yet they're far less capable which is interesting, but what's also interesting, if, 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 if there was a way to increase intelligence just by 2 or 3%, how far superior those machines or beings or people would be as well. So that's, that's food for thought, that we don't need much of an increase for them to be far superior. But Kevin Kelly, on the other hand, says artificial intelligence is not going to play out in a humanoid form. It's going to play out in a niche per technology form, so it's, and we're not going to have this future where we're with, with uh, competitive humans, so to speak. That's, that's his interpretation. Uh, I tend to um, agree with that interpretation. I don't think we're going to have robots taking over. I th- well, I'm, I'm hoping that it's going to remain technology uh, en- enabling humans to do better things and have better access rather than being overwhelmed by the robots. I hope so. When I see those Boston Dynamics robots, you know, doing backflips and opening doors and I'm like, whoa, you know, that's, uh, that's going to be really interesting, particularly when someone unfortunately puts a gun in, in their hands. But anyway, let's, 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 that's for, for another show. Let's leave it on that note. Nick uh, Steenhope, thank you so much for joining us. We're going to put a link to your Twitter account and your podcast and um, important issue to consider web accessibility and to, to bring awareness to this all. So we really appreciate your time all the way from Montreal. I am going to come visit you one day, but I can absolutely guarantee you that it's not going to be in January. So <laughs> your diary is going to be free from having a drink with me in January. So no. <laughs> Thanks so much, Nick. All right. Thank you. Cheers. Bye-bye. The It's a Monkey podcast is brought to you by CheckDog. Use CheckDog to easily review and monitor your website for spelling errors, broken links, and broken images, all with the push of one button. CheckDog can also automatically monitor your website and notify you of newly introduced spelling errors. Go to checkdog.com forward slash podcast to receive 50% off your first month subscription. CheckDog.com. Helping the world's leading websites keep their content error-free. Kate, when you're designing UI, etc., honestly, do you do you factor any accessibility themes into your approach and design and and uh, sort of deliverables? I do. It could be a lot better, but things like alt tags. So, for people who don't know what alt tags are, that's like a a written description of the image, which goes in in the code. Alternate um, so text, right? As well alternate as text. Yeah. 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 So when I'm sort of designing or if I'm doing like some front end development, I always include alt tags. But I mean, in terms of as well, like I think of accessibility not necessarily in the context of disabilities, but in being able to access the information. So like I'll be designing for mobile and tablet and desktop. Um, but that can certainly be extended a lot more. And it's not something that's particularly well taught, um, but you do become aware of it the more you sort of work and read on things. And actually, you know, re our previous discussion where we're talking about the improvement of voice interfaces, I mean, that would really help a lot of disabled people. If it would. Voice navigation, right? Yeah, I'm sure actually the iPhone already does that. Um, I remember a few Christmases ago, I met someone who was uh, blind and it was really interesting to see how well he could use his phone based on just listening to Siri talk to him and talk him through the steps. And just an interesting anecdote, anecdote back to my dinosaur days, alternate text we used to use because the internet used to be so slow and it would get so congested that sometimes if you were in a hurry, you would actually switch off images intentionally while you were browsing right? 
And when mm. you switched off images, what would be presented would be alternate text. So if uh, the developers hadn't put alternate text in, you couldn't really navigate nicely. But if there was nice alternate text, you didn't really need the image. It would say image of a nice pretty tree. So you're like, okay, I get it. So uh, yeah, yeah. But I know, like for you know, legally blind people, they kind of need to have that description because the phone will read the page to them and it'll read the alt text. So it'll read what the image is. This is a picture of X, Y, Z, and then it'll read the text as well. So it's giving you like the whole context of the website, not just what's written in the body type thing. Yeah, absolutely. And and it is an important um, theme and it is something that, that we need to, you know, the spirit of technology is making everyone's lives easier. And so um, that's, that's where all the, the exciting bits and pieces mm. happen. So it is important for, for us to consider all aspects of, uh, of accessibility as much as we can. Yeah, for sure. I think um, I need to test out his theory actually, maybe after this podcast of using shift and tab keys mm-hmm. to test how well uh, your website's formatted for accessibility. So in theory, you should be able to navigate entirely around the site just by using shift and tab mm-hmm. and select, I guess. Um, so enter, but yeah, I, I figure like most websites, you probably couldn't do that. Like in a field, are we filling out information? Okay, but to navigate, be quite difficult. Yeah, I mean it's it's so easy for us to forget how people struggle with day to day tasks. You know, mentioned before how I was meeting with the lawyer last year, and um, he's a brilliant guy, and he's in a wheelchair, and he came to our previous office, not the one we're at now, and. Um, he was just at the bottom of the stairs in his wheelchair and there was absolutely no, it was an older building and there was just no way for him to get up these stairs, you know. And I, I'd actually mm-hmm. never noticed it in the building that the building was an older building. It had no ramp. It had no portable ramp. The stairs were too steep and we had to find an alternative venue, which is not, wasn't the biggest deal in the world. But, you know, the poor guy can't get into every building in Sydney. Yeah, it's quite a, an interesting like it's sort of one of those things that you don't really think about it until you put in that position. And, I mean, Nick made a good point too. He said there's an important distinction between impairment and disability. So your your impairment is what you can't do physically, mm-hmm. but your disability is actually reliant on, I guess how how you're restricted. So if if the rest of the world and doesn't restrict you, so if if they had a ramp there, it's not an then issue. Yeah, it's not an issue. Like he has an impairment, not a disability, but. He becomes a disability when he can't do something, so he can't get into that building. Yeah, yeah, and this is why, I mean, you know, this is where governments need to play a role by changing the playing field, right? I was actually surprised. I actually said to our landlord at the time, I thought, I thought there was a law that every building had to be accessible by wheelchair, and apparently if it's an older building or, or something, it's... It doesn't need to be. I think all new buildings have to be accessible, but I think all uh, older buildings, they don't force them to. So it's not as simple as that. But yeah, no, even these old buildings, like I can understand like some of them would be quite, it would be quite difficult to completely reconstruct their entryway, just like particularly if it was heritage listed and that type of thing. But I feel like they should still invest in, I guess, equipment that can overlay that. You know, like in the in the case of the stairs, you know, they should have had a ramp that you could get out of a utility closet and install it there for the sake of him getting in. I think in this particular case, the stairs were very, very steep. The, I think the only the only technology you could have overlaid on top of this would have been a some mechanized type of lift that would have been yeah. installed, um, which would have been great expense and then you've got to convince all the owners of those offices to invest money into that and if they're not legally required to do that well you know they could argue that well maybe one person a year visiting so things are always things are always more complex but um depends whether somebody working in the building that's what i mean like if it restricted them if it restricted them from their job then i feel like yes they would have to make that change yeah, I mean, I was surprised. Legally, I don't think it would be unreasonable, at least in the CBD, that every building has to have a way for someone in a wheelchair to enter. I don't think it's an unreasonable burden to place on every single building. There are solutions that you can overlay, absolutely. 
Because mm. I remember in my primary school, there was a girl that started, this is going back a long time, but she had, I actually, I couldn't really tell you what exactly she had, but she had um, issues walking. Mm-hmm. And so the whole school had to go and they had to, like every staircase had a ramp built next to it mm-hmm. because she was attending the school. Which is good because it shouldn't be limited. Like she shouldn't be limited by that. But I think it was just like a government thing that, well, if if this child's going to attend this school, then the school needs to be accessible. And there is something wonderful about structuring society towards sort of people that are the the least physically capable. It's a it's a, it's it really means it just shows how we value all members of society. And I think there's something quite wonderful about that. And I think Australia is generally quite good at those things. Yeah. Yeah, I think they're they're pretty on top of it, but it, there's always room for improvement. Anyway, you've been listening to the It's a Monkey podcast, episode 120. We hope you've enjoyed it. We like hearing from you, so drop us an email or a tweet. We'll be back next week with episode 121. And, hey, we have a whole archive of 120 episodes at the website, itsamonkey.com. We've interviewed some fascinating people, ranging from Melanie Perkins, the CEO of Canva, to... Kevin Kelly, who's an amazing uh, technology sort of philosopher, um, to David Hanemeyer Hansen, to Dr. John Demartini. So there's all sorts of people that we've interviewed. Um, if you're going on a long car trip, one of the things that I love to do on long car trips is discover a new podcast and just binge listen while I go on these long drives. In Australia, you know, one thing, Kate, in Europe, you just realize how big Australia is because in Australia you can drive for 10 hours and still not really put a dent in, in and in Europe, in Europe, you can drive, you know, you can get to London from Paris with two and a half hour train trip, right? <laughs> train yeah. trip. So uh, I'm not sure if people in other parts of the world do as much driving as we do sometimes and have these 10 hour drives that we do sometimes, but maybe they do, especially in Canada and America. They're also pretty big countries. Yeah, no, it is definitely a thing. Like a lot of people will make comments about, oh, you're from Australia, driving is nothing. Driving that long is nothing to you. But if they're from Europe, they think, oh, four-hour drive, it's a long way. In in Israel, five hours, top to bottom of the country. That's it, done. (laughs) So not not much left. So um, And and left to right, a lot less. So, yes, we we do have a very big country. But, um, yeah, all these podcasts are there. So if you want to binge listen to them, you're welcome. We even have some nice early days blockchain and Bitcoin interviews. So enjoy. I hope you enjoy them. Uh, If you can, tell one or two people about the podcast and give us a review on iTunes. That always helps. And otherwise, we'll see you next week. Thanks for listening.